how would you like to join us in the definitive nightmare? I thought you killed Freddy off. They told you he was dead. And since you've been thinking of making it, has anything funny happened? For uh, ten years, he's been held captive as Freddy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And now he's got the last laugh. What is he doing? He's decided to cross over out of films into our reality. Wes Craven's new nightmare. Miss me? Hey everybody, welcome to Craven Craven episode 14. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm joined as always by my Craven Craven co-host Heather Wixon. Hi Heather. Hello, Craven some Craven in the new year, Patrick. 2022 Craven Craven, is this the year we finish this project? I He doesn't have 12 I, more movies, does he? I don't know. Is I that crazy? Either. Yeah. I, I'm just kind of going for the ride, but we we may we might carry this through until next year, depending on if you can c- continue to fit me in. Uh, well, right, that's schedule. true. That's true. We do have a very there's, busy schedule at F this movie. Well, there's a few months last year where you were just so busy, so <laughs> you know it's fine. Those are the months we have like built-in shows that we have to do every year. Otherwise, yeah, I know. it's I get easy it. to I get it. Uh, to it's squeeze nice to in. Have things to do. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. <laughs> what are we talking about on Craven Craven this month? We we're, we're getting we're getting into the my favorite era era of my 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 favorite era of Craven, era. Uh, which we're going to be kicking off with Wes Craven's new nightmare. Very exciting. Here is the plot synopsis from IMDb for New Nightmare. A demonic force has chosen Freddy Krueger as its portal to the real world. Can Heather Langenkamp play the part of Nancy one last time and trap the evil trying to enter our world? This is clearly written by just a person because uh, I'm not even sure that's correct. Um, no, that is correct. All right. <laughs> how, how is that not correct? Because, I mean, that that's how Wes kind of lays it out. Um, that, you know, there's sort of this evil force and it's kind of, you know, chosen Freddy as its vessel. And because Nancy was sort of the original person to take it right. down. She has she to kind has of to assume the role of Nancy. Heather, she has so, yeah, to play Nancy one last time. On. All right, all right. I like it better than, like, the studio mumbo-jumbo they usually throw at Well, it. all the other ones are, like, a full paragraph. Oh, okay. That, that's a little more, you know, quick and to the point, I yeah, think. Yeah, I was trying to go with the shortest one. I appreciate it. Brevity. Soul of wit. <laughs> um, yeah, for some reason I thought like Freddy was the evil force, so I was like, was well, that correct that those two things are separate? But I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I, I and I think that's what's kind of interesting because like, okay, you know, we've had Freddy's dead. You know, that's that's the thing that happened. Boy, did it happen. Um, you know, <laughs> and so how do you so how do you bring back Freddy? But you don't bring him back under ways that sort of feel like it undermines six. Not that you, you know, right, not right, that right. I think anybody's really worried about it, but don't tarnish you know, the legacy of Freddy's dead. Yes. Um, so I think what they, you know, they had to do was basically come, you know, Wes was exploring the concept of what pure evil is, what that means within a real world context, and then sort of bring it, you know, kind of assign it sort of this uh, avatar of sorts. Did someone say, avatar? you know, Oh yeah, I know you like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you should hang out with my mom. Don't don't do that. No, I don't mean that. No, sorry. Um, but like, in in give this evil like some sort of an entity, right? That it can like 
encompass and then come forth into the real world. Um, you know, for me, and honestly, like, did, was this something you saw in theaters? Yeah, I was going to say this was my first Wes Craven in theaters, but then I remembered I saw People Under the Stairs, so. Oh, okay. But I gotcha. did go see yeah, this I... opening weekend in theaters by myself, and then this was the second Laserdisc I ever owned because I wanted, it was my first audio commentary. I wanted to hear Wes Craven's commentary, so this was the second Laserdisc I ever owned. Oh, you're cool. I never had a Laserdisc player. I am cool. Um, I know you are. That's why That's why I hang out with you. That's right. Um. Yeah. Um, for me, like this was actually after three, this, like I actually didn't see new nightmare in theaters um, because I saw six. <laughs> and I was so bummed out <laughs> by Freddy's dead. And I mean, no offense to anybody who loves Freddy's dead. I'm really trying with that movie. Every, every time I do a franchise rewatch, I'm like, all right, I'm going in with a, with an open mind and it grows on me a little more each time, but I'm never, I don't think I'm ever going to get there to fully embracing it and loving it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's close. It's got some fun moments, but it's just, Does it? <sighs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, which Freddy's fun. I don't know. Anyway, no. I was so, I was so heartbroken by Freddy's dead. I was just kind of checked out at that point. And I think that was also sort of the start of my snooty, auteur phase Ooh. I went through that I think a lot of people like a lot of teens that were sort of really getting into movies seriously in the 90s went through you know what I mean like everything had to be like you know a Tarantino type of thing sure. or like you know Kevin Smith's Clerks was in 94 you know so it was like I was going and seeing Crumb at movie theaters Ooh. you know or you know and things like that like I just thought I was too good for it um, but what I did do is I did rent it in 95 and I, I remember specifically because my mom used to work overnights um, at the White Hen that I also worked at, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which was amazing to enjoy when you're in high school, like to not have your mom home on the weekends overnight, <laughs> get away with a lot. And I remember it was like storming that night and I had all the windows open because we didn't have air conditioning and it was the summer and I was home and I was like, I'm going to watch this before I go to bed, whatever. And it scared the crap out of me. Like I was not expecting it to be this movie and i was like holy crap like I, I immediately had remorse over not seeing it in theaters when it came out yeah um but it was like at this point i was like too cool for school like i was like oh nothing gets to me blah 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 and this movie genuinely unnerved me um and at a time where you know you're 16 and you're like oh, i'm cool and like no i literally slept with the lights on in the entire house when i went to bed like every single light was on well, so that answers like kind of my first question that I was going to ask you, because as I was rewatching this a couple of days ago, I was asking myself, you know, there's a lot of movies like sort of on the tips of our tongues right now because we have a new Scream. Our Craven Craven on Scream is coming up pretty soon. Um, Matrix Resurrections just came out and all of them are sort of about this meta approach that new Nightmare, I won't say like pioneered because I don't think that many films were completely influenced by it. I think Scream was influenced by it and then Scream kind of pioneered it. So whatever. It's Wes Craven either way. But my point is I wanted to ask you if you think New Nightmare functions effectively as a horror movie 
in addition to being an essay on a, on on horror, and it sounds like you do think it works as a horror movie. Oh, I do because I think you know honestly, I think having that heightened reality of like the earthquakes happening and things like that, and especially now that I live out here, um, and I'm kind of nervous about earthquakes a lot. Sure. Um, I, it's weird, but yeah, I get really un- unsettled. Like the first couple of ones that I had, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And then I remember, like, the first real one I had, I remember being, I lived in this apartment that was kind of down in the ground. Um, and I remember, like, literally just everything, like, moving really strong. And my cats, like, went down into military crawl positions. They were like, what the shit is this? And I was like, I'm sorry, guys. And they're like, where did you move us? <laughs> um, so I think having that unnerving reality mixed with this, you know, really visceral fantasy of you know what freddy krueger becomes and how he can come into the real world you know i think for me that was the thing that scared me as a kid about freddy was the idea that you know at the end of the original nightmare on Elm street when nancy brings him into the real world well this movie he is in the real world right so how the hell do you stop him now right um and i think there's some really fantastic scares in this movie like i really think that closet scare still gets me when he's like miss me and he jumped i'm like ah you know, it's still it's still a fantastic moment um, that I think still works. And, you know, we're almost 30 years removed from when this came out. My God. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. What is happening? Um, and I just so for me, like it works. It, it's it works in, in, in both ways where it's it's saying a lot about, you know, where I think Wes thought horror was headed, where we had been, where it should be going. Um, but I think as a Nightmare on Elm Street movie as well, you know, I do think it's the first time since the first one that I was genuinely unnerved. Okay. Because, like, the, you know, when you kind of get it, like, two for me isn't necessarily scary. Um, and then three kind of gets into the more, like, you know, yeah. funness and, you know, Dream Master, he becomes super quippy and it just kind of goes downhill from there. Um, so for me, this really took me back to that experience of watching the original Nightmare on Elm Street as a small child and being completely terrified, but totally mesmerized by Freddy. Right. Yeah, I I appreciate that two tries to be scary. I agree with you that it doesn't totally succeed, but it does try to be scary, which none of the other films do after that. Yeah, I mean, it's. And it has Until some really this good one. moments, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think, too, it's got some genuinely good, unnerving things. Like, again, the pool party and kids just trying to get out. And Freddy is just running amok. And, you know, and you've got kids, like, in chaos and running around and that kind of stuff. Like, that's some good stuff. The pulling back of the brain, being exposed. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, what are we doing there? Coming through, you know, Jesse and you know, in Robert Russell's room and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, it tries. Um, I will say, though, when I was a kid, it, it scared me because, like, especially that bus scene, because if you're a kid who takes the bus to school, the last thing you want to see is a nightmare set on a bus because <laughs> it has you second guessing getting onto the bus every single day for at least a few weeks where you're like, right, OK, is, right. is, is, is this cool? We cool? OK, we're cool, right? So I'm going to say something and you may hate me for it or you may push back against me on it. Um, And it's like a quibble. It's not a this is not a major complaint. But you brought up that closet scare where he says, miss me. And as I was watching it, I was like, boy, I wish he didn't say anything. I wish this Freddy didn't wisecrack. And I understand that wisecracking is part of being Freddy. I think my, my issue with it is as soon as he does, I can't divorce it from being Robert Englund. 
And Robert Englund is already in this movie as Robert Englund. And so as soon as the... Does this make any sense that I want to divorce Robert Englund in makeup as Freddy from Demon Freddy that is meant to be the threat in New Nightmare? So maybe if they had modulated his voice differently, had him not crack wise at all, like a slightly different approach maybe would have put Robert Englund out of my mind because as it stands every time he talks, I'm like, well, that I'm just remembering that this is the guy playing Freddy instead of it being this separate new Freddy entity. I don't know if this makes any sense. I'm working it out as I'm talking about it. No, no, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. No, I don't hate you. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. I think for me, the talking doesn't bother me as much only because, it's not nearly as quippy and as snarky. Like when he says, miss me, I don't, there's a tone of menace to it. Like real menace. Not like, you know, what's going on kids. I'm back. Like <laughs> Time to come know, out of the closet. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's not like everything doesn't end with bitch in this movie. Like <laughs> he calls her a bitch a few times, but it's not like, he doesn't say you miss know, me, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like scary Terry on uh Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm scary Terry, bitch. Um, you know, and I, I think for me, like, it's, there's like the one moment that I think is truly unnerving. And I think what really sort of sets the stakes of the story is there is the moment when Nan Nancy, but Heather picks up the phone and he says, I touched him. And to me, because of the connotations that you get from the first movie and sort of that removal of the child molestation subplot from the original script. Right. That, to me, is one of the most genuinely horrifying things that Freddy Krueger says in the entire franchise. Because it's grounded in this reality of this entity coming after this small child. And it has really horrifying undertones to it. Right. Especially if you're somebody who is aware of what Freddy Krueger was supposed to be originally. Right. Um, so I, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I think if they had a nonverbal Freddy, then you just have Jason, you know, yeah, I, mean? I guess. Right. I, I, I get that. Like him. So then why didn't he just morph into Jason? <laughs> that was a different movie. <laughs> Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd still watch it. Well, sure. <laughs> I'd still watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> But I think with Freddy, there is sort of that expectation of his verbal presence as well. But I get it. I get because you have Robert England in this movie as a person. And then you have, you know, Freddy Krueger, who is not supposed to be associated. With, I get like where it, 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 the overlap can be a little disconcerting because you really want to separate the two. Right. Right. So it's like, you almost think, like, should they have had, I mean, God forbid, I, I'll probably get lambasted. Like, should they have had somebody else doing the physical performance of Freddy to make him a little, a little different? I, you know, I don't know. That's a, you know, it's a question to think about. Um, but I get it. I get what you're saying. Uh, but I think for me, because everything he says is so serious, except for uh, something about the gingerbread. But I think at that point, it's this evil I mean, I think the evil entity that's, you know, taken over the, the, the form of Freddy is aware of who Freddy is. And now he's sort of playing in Freddy's playground, if you will. Okay. Like, I think that's kind of where it comes from. But none of it, I think, for me, 
plays tongue in cheek the way right, right, stuff right. in like three, four, and five was. Yeah, it never crosses over right into especially like part six where he's riding on a broom and playing Nintendo and stuff like that. Now we're playing with power. Uh, I will never <laughs> like six. <laughs> I really try, man. I really try. No. But, you know, I mean, I, I, there's, you know, I'd, I'd still watch six over the Babadook. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jennifer Kent. I'm so sorry. No, you made, you made okay. a lovely movie, though. She, she understands. Made a lovely movie. Let me ask another important question. This one is about Heather Langenkamp. Um, huh. Has another human being ever looked better in a movie than Heather Langenkamp looks in New Nightmare? Oh, she's like a freaking queen. And like, see, here's the thing. And somebody brought this up on Twitter and I really loved this. And I don't ever want to pit, you know, characters or actresses against each other. But somebody was making the case as to why Nancy really was a final girl or a survivor girl, if you will. Where somebody like Jamie Lee as Laurie Strode really wasn't. Um, and that's because of Nancy's proactivity. She was very proactive right. in her circumstances. Like right. she didn't, you know, if you look at the original Halloween, like Laurie fights back to a degree, but she still basically kind of gets sort of pushed to the side for Loomis to come in and basically save the day sure. or save the day until part two kicks off. Um, and she kind of, same thing happens in the original Halloween too. And for, you know, if you look at somebody like Nancy, who was like, oh my God, there's this thing. He's killed all my friends. My parents know about it. They, they won't do anything about it. I have to stop this. And then she goes and puts herself through school so that she can come back and help these kids through it because she knows that these kids, you know, that there's going to be more kids who are going to be suffering because of him. And she you know, makes a decision to come back into the scenario and put herself in harm's way to help these kids, you know? So for me, like, I, you know, I've always loved Nancy slash Heather. I mean, the fact that her name is Heather also helps. Of course. Um, so there's always been sort of that kinship, but like what I love about this is like, she's, she's stunning, but she's like smart. Like there's just, there's really something about Heather Langenkamp that I always feel like, I don't feel like she gets the respect that she deserves for the things that she did in this franchise. Like, I know everybody loves her, but like, ultimately, like, you know, we were talking about Sydney in the screen movies. Like I don't go to a nightmare in Elm street movie, hoping that I'm going to watch Nancy die, which I think is why three destroyed me the way that it did. Um, and so I liked having her come back and be able to do something that felt empowering in a way that the first one felt empowering. Right. You know, because here's a woman who, you know, her husband dies, her kid's been, you know, dealing with all these things. You know, she's got people at the hospital who want to keep her from her kid, who think she's crazy, you know, and she has to do something about it. Like, she's forced into a corner. And I also want to say, too, like, and, you know, we can talk about this, but for as much as this movie parallels, you know, the the earthquakes and things that were going on you know in california which were also very unnerving and unsettling for people at that time like a lot of this story is based on things that like heather and her husband david were going through mm -hmm. in the early 90s and you know heather had a stalker that got really it, the situation got really serious i know a book you might be able to read about this and um and 
they basically, her and David, they had to move to London for seven months to kind of get away from the situation because it got that bad. And I don't know how much Wes knew about it, but I think he then sort of embellished, but then all of a sudden, like, they read, apparently they read, like, a first draft of the script, and there was so many things that were so on point with the experiences that Heather and David had. They were like, we have to dial this back a little bit because it is way too on the nose. Wow. And so they had to pull back some things. And it was, and that was the one nice thing that um, David talked about when I interviewed him was like, Wes was really okay with like letting Heather set the ball, like set the line in the sand. And we don't cross this line. Mm -hmm. Like there are certain things we can address with this, but ultimately there are certain things we're just not going to go there. Okay. Um, You know? And so for me, I think also knowing the scary realities of what was going on with her in, in real life and being able to sort of use that trauma and turn it into something, I don't want to say positive, but turning it into something that she could kind of work through, you know, creatively. Um, you know, I think that's why one of the reasons I think new nightmare stands out because there, it, it is steeped in a lot of reality in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and I will say personally too, I just like Heather to me is such a freaking warrior. <laughs> um, because I also don't think a lot of people knew for years. Um, and again, I talked talked about this in my interview with David, um, that she had a, a child who was terminally ill and she was still going to conventions and still putting on a brave face and still being there for the fans for, for years. And you would have never known it. Right. And to me, that's like strength because she didn't have to do that. But she did because that was something, you know, she felt passionate about where she was like, I, you know, I still want to be out there, you know, and she still wanted to give back to us fans and she didn't have to. Right. Um, And I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine going through the things that they went through and showing up at a convention and never once cracking. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, that's amazing to me. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, I, I don't know if you can tell, but I absolutely adore Heather Langkamp. And to see her get to be celebrated in a way that isn't just her playing Nancy traditionally is so freaking cool. Like, I just think it's, like, one of the coolest things I think we've ever gotten to experience in horror. You know, if the next Scream movie is about Nev Campbell having to come back and do a Scream movie, okay, then we're talking. (laughs) But I don't know that that's going to happen. But, like, getting to see Heather Langenkamp be Heather Langenkamp, um, you know, is just, I I think that's actually just a testament to Wes's long-term faith in who she is as a human being and as a performer. And, you know, her ability to, you know, basically put herself out there like that because she didn't have to give us that kind of access. Right, right. It's, that was a long-winded answer. No, that's Sorry. okay. It, it, it's astounding to me that this movie exists 10 years removed from the original. Because you watch right? it and it feels like this is the kind of movie that they make 25 years later. So I'm not again. I'm not saying that this movie invented the concept of the legacy sequel, but it sure feels like it because this is such an interesting approach to a sequel, and I feel like it doesn't get enough credit. I know it has its fans, and I know a lot of people really love and respect this movie, um, but I also know a lot of people really don't like it, and I get that for some people it doesn't work as a horror movie. Um, 
And I think it works better as like an idea movie than I do as a straightforward horror movie. I think it's trying to do both, and I think it's more successful in one way than it is in the other. Um, but I also think it's better at being a horror movie than well, we don't have to talk about Matrix Resurrections, but like Matrix Matrix <laughs> Resurrections to me works better as an idea movie than it does as a Matrix movie if that makes sense. And so this I think works better at being a horror movie than matrix works at being a matrix movie, whatever this is. I'm, I'm off the, I'm off on a tangent here, but my point is this, I get that not everybody loves it, but I wish people would at least appreciate the ambition of what it's trying to do, because I cannot think of another movie like new nightmare that is really trying to reckon with this thing that Wes Craven created in such an interesting and compelling way that's asking questions about to what responsibility does the creator have for putting this out in the world. And it doesn't just apply to a horror filmmaker. It applies to all artists, you know, to what, to what degree do they have ownership over what it is that they've put out in the world? Or does it now belong to the public? Does it belong to something larger uh, in this case, obviously, some weird evil force that has to be kept at bay. And the way that we keep it at bay is by telling stories. And our, in this case, the stories are horror movies. It's such a fascinating movie. I remember seeing this movie for the first time and having pretty low expectations because, like you, I was not a fan of Six. Um, and at the time, I didn't even love Five. Five is a movie that I've really come to appreciate. But So I went to see it because I was like, well, it's a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I've never been able to go see one in the theater, and I'm old enough to drive myself now. So I'm going to go see it by myself on a Saturday afternoon. And really having my mind blown at how inventive and smart this movie is. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, even when you think about it in the context of where horror was in 1994. And, like, there's some some decent stuff that came out that year because you've got, like, In the Mouth of Madness. Sure. um, Which is doing some similar things. Yeah, like it's it's kind of, you know, it's it's pulling back some layers that right. you're not quite expecting in terms of reality, fantasy, horror and things like that. Um but ultimately, you know, horror in 1994 wasn't doing a whole lot. Sure. Overall, at least here in the states. I mean, you get something like Cemetery Man like overseas, um which I didn't see until the 2000s cuz I did, you know, I was just out of the loop, I guess. Um, but like I went and looked last night to see like, oh, well, let's see what else was going on. And ultimately, like you have thing, you have like these big high concept, like sort of studio movies. Like you've got like Interview the Vampire, which is an adaptation. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is an adaptation. And then you also have something, you know, like Wolf, which is, you know, taking on, you know, Wolfman type of stuff. Like well, this was so the, the period where they started making horror movies for our parents. Yeah, and so for me, even though this is a movie that feels more geared towards adults yeah, because of the subject matter, you know, for me, I think it still delivers, you know, in terms of me being a teenager at that point, like, I was still completely enthralled. Don't get me wrong, I love Interview the Vampire. Mm. Um, well, it's, look, I'm, I'm only... <laughs> I get it. I'm only human, and it's like, that was... They're very pretty, I, I get it. They're so pretty. I get They're it. So I get pretty. it. <laughs> I'm so pretty. I mean, it's, I don't, I wouldn't call it a super amazing adaptation, 
But I'll tell you, like, it's just fun to kind of get lost in that world for two hours. I haven't seen it for a long time. I'm due for a revisit for sure. Yeah, I actually just watched it last October and I was surprised at how intoxicating it still felt. Okay. Like, I kind of felt like felt like Christian Slater, like where you're just so hung up on it. Like, I was like, yeah, I am ready to be a vampire. Let's do this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of was looking at like where horror was at that point. Like, we had the stand you know, on TV, but like, ultimately there wasn't a ton going on. Like we had a lot of sort of mid-level sequels, um, you know, a few full moon movies, if you will. What's that? Come again? Yeah. 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 Um, or actually I don't know if that was cause sorry. Cause I was, for some reason I had ghoulies in my head as a full moon, but I don't think they were full moon. Were they, they were empire. Okay. That's what it was. Um, you know, and you had like you, another Leprechaun movie. <laughs> For some reason, we had a, a Night of the Demons sequel that year as well. Was that three? Two. Oh, two was in '94. Wow, it took that long yeah. for two to come out. Right, like that movie. If you're going to sequelize Night of the Demons, that thing should have been out a year or two at yeah. the most yeah. after the first one. You know, we had Phantasm three, Pumpkinhead two, Puppet Master five. Oof. Um. Yeah. The Unborn 2, which I actually never saw Unborn 1, so I I missed out. We were on Watchers 3 at that point. So, in Witchcraft 6 was also the same year. So, if you think about it, like, really, New Nightmare kind of stands alone in the genre at that point. Because, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot going on. There's there's a reason we probably will never do Class of '94 because we we all can't write about the same five movies. Um, I'm sure you'll take all the you would take all the empires though. Um, uh, they were full moon by then. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's just like it's to me like because of sort of this change of guard in the '90s with filmmaking. I think that's why New Nightmare stands up because it kind of fits that sort of thing where like you kind of had like the Sundance breakout of like sex lies and videotapes leading into the nineties. Right. Cause that was like 89 or something. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember parents renting it. We were told not to watch it, but I, we watched it anyway. There's um, nothing really dirty in that movie. It's so funny. No, the title is way more salacious than the movie itself. Oh, yeah. It's all talking. Oh yeah. Um, and so for me, like this movie feels like sort of like, where you were kind of getting this, it's funny to me that Wes Craven was making something that felt like it was sort of the new guard of horror. Yet he was somebody who's been in the genre at this point for 20 something years. Right. But like, that was the beauty of who Wes Craven was, is that somehow he could come to this franchise 10 years in and make something that felt so revelatory comparative to where the franchise was, where horror was at that time. Um, and to me, that's why, I, you know, it's like I go back and forth because I'm so wishy-washy and I can never make up my mind. But I kind of do think it is my favorite sequel because it's, it is freaking bold. Like, it really went out and tried to do something different. And it very much is the precursor to Scream. Yeah. Yeah, Scream, Scream kind of finds a way to do this in a much more commercial and accessible way. Because New it's Nightmare was never going to be like a big box office hit, you know? <laughs> like, even... Even Freddy Krueger fans probably came away from that movie scratching their heads a little bit. Like, it's Freddy, but it's not Freddy. And and I don't understand this movie. Um, Where, yeah, Scream is for 
teenagers scream is again working through some of these same ideas but in a way that's way more uh polished and slick and uh you know commercial I mean, maybe what this movie needed was Randy to come in to set forth the rules for everybody. So <laughs> for sure. Kind of understood it. Right. You know, because I mean, I think that's the thing that that makes Scream so, so accessible. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But like it lays it all out for you. So right. even if you have zero idea of what the conventions and tropes and things like that of horror movies, this movie will, you know, Scream will tell them to you. So that way you're all caught up with us nerds who are already hip to the game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, where New Nightmare, it makes you think about it a little bit. And I think that's what's like the beauty of it is like that Wes ultimately was always a storyteller. Like you could tell that he loved stories. And when you think about slasher movies, they're not always heavy on story, right? Right. You know, sometimes you go in and there's just like, hey, we, we're, we're a bunch of teenagers. We showed up at a cabin and uh oh, someone's trying to kill us. Um, where you look at what he tried to do in this subgenre and it's like he was always pushing things in ways that other directors weren't. I don't mean that to disrespect like, you know, Sean Cunningham or Steve Meyer, those guys who were working in the Friday 13th movies or anything like that. Like there was just something special about if you, if you were seeing a Wes Craven movie for better or for worse. Um, and especially in the nineties, you knew at least there was going to be story. There was going to be something you could latch on to because it wasn't like, you know, even when we get to vampire in Brooklyn, like he could have, <laughs> which is next, by the way, it is next. And I'm really excited about it. Um, maybe some people are less excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated. Like, so maybe that, that's something. Yeah. Did you get that Blu-ray last year? I did. So see, we, we were all ready for this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and I think, to me, that's why I loved him so much is because I always came away with a new appreciation for what the power of storytelling could be. I love stories. Like, I love stories, like whether you're watching the movies or if I'm just listening to hearing somebody talk about their life. Like, to me, I, that's what I love. And this movie kind of blends those things together where you're getting sort of this real life stuff but you're mixing it with this horror fantasy stuff and like it's it's just wonderful and i think ultimately too the way that it sort of taps into some like childhood um fairy tales and things like that where like we grew up reading hansel and gretel mm -hmm. but i guess i never realized until i got much older like how creepy pretty much all of those stories are right they're all about trying to kill kids yeah. You know, yeah. and that's sort of that was like a tradition. There was a storytelling <laughs> tradition of trying to kill kids. <laughs> like, OK, so for everybody who always complained about like how mean horror movies were because they were always putting teens in jeopardy and things like that, I'm like that goes back centuries. Right. You know, to the, the, the classics, you know, fairy tales and folklore and things like that where like kids were always in jeopardy kids will always be in jeopardy but the game changes a little bit as time progresses if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely it's um and and, and this movie obviously is building on a lot of those concepts with the miko hughes character but again it's told from heather langenkamp's perspective so it's more about protecting her child than it is about 
it's not his point of view of being in jeopardy. It's the mother's point of view of trying to protect her son, which obviously we could extrapolate just from any any parent, anyone who has anyone that that they care about and that they love wants to protect them from the dangers of the world. And this just, you know, literalizes some of those dangers of the world into a, a, a razor clawed monster but it could be any danger you know even when he's standing on the jungle gym it's just like oh my god he's gonna fall uh, yeah my favorite story about that jungle gym too and i think i said this uh i think when i did the pet cemetery panel uh with miko on it um but i, I remember was there VH1, for that yeah vh1 always had this thing about like kid they used to do this show like in the late 90s about like kid stars and where are they now and fun stories about that kind of stuff and i remember the story was that they were the playground where new nightmare takes place they were actually gonna demolish the that playground and set up new stuff because you know it was old and you know kind of a little bit of a hazard obviously if a small child can climb up there maybe rethink things a little bit <laughs> um in meek in miko hughes's family actually bought that jungle gym thing and put it up in their backyard. That's awesome. And saved it, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And I no. remember asking because so I was like, "I was like, is that real?" And he was like, "Yeah, we did." And I was like, "That's super cool." <laughs> now he can climb on it every day. Right. And now th- th- this is this is how terrible this is. Like he's not old enough. Like he probably has kids. Right. Who can climb around? Like that's where we're at. We're like the little tiny children in horror movies. Speaking, yeah, and which is funny because. Heather's husband David also worked at Pet Cemetery, um, but like little Miko Hughes, little Gage, now is like you know he's like a parent I think and stuff like that. <laughs> it's just what a world. So was David just not interested in being in the movie because he's not an actor, or was it just one of those things where it was like no, that's blurring the lines too much? It was. Uh, he 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 just felt it was a little too much, okay. um, but they had asked him to do it. And he was like, no, I, I think that's okay. And I think also, too, one of the things that they always established uh, in their house um, was that if one of them was working, the other one was home with the kids. Okay. So if Heather was on a movie or Heather was doing TV, David was home with the kids and he wouldn't take any FX jobs. And then vice versa, if he had to go and be on production, you know, Heather would be home with the kids, you know, until they got old enough. Um and, you know, and then they were kind of, you know, the kids were older and things like that. So and then Heather now works as in the effect shop. Right. Which is crazy bananas. Um, but really awesome. Yeah, no, it rules. Where, by the way, where could people read this interview that you keep talking about with David? Oh, um, there's <laughs> uh, I, I it's in Monsters Makeup and Effects Volume One, which came out in October. You don't um, say. say a whole book I of do. interviews with monsters with and effects, effects makers. Yeah. Who would write such a book? A glutton for punishment, I guess. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, but I will say, like, I, the thing is, David's chapter was really tough because when I spoke, when we did the first part of our interview, it was right at the one year anniversary when they lost their son. Oh, my gosh. And we were just about to get into star trek and i hadn't i honestly i had no idea that they had lost their son I, I had no idea about any of this and we were you know we were about 90 minutes into our conversation and he's like you know heather he's like is it okay if we talk more at another time and he didn't really say anything and i'm super flexible with everybody because you know one it's we're talking about a lot of different things people you know sometimes need to pace themselves so i didn't really know 
what was happening. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And he's like, I'll send you an email in a few weeks. We'll talk then. I was like, okay, great. And they ended up like going away for a week or so just to be away to kind of mourn, you know, because it was the one year anniversary and like him talking to me, like I wasn't expecting it. Like I will, I don't ever talk to somebody looking to go super deep if they're not comfortable with it. Cause I never want to make anybody share anything that they don't feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, you know, when we came back into the conversation, we picked up with star Trek 2009, which is basically when they found out their son had brain cancer. Ugh. And it was literally during a meeting for star Trek because their son was overseas. I think he was, um, working in Paris or he was working overseas or studying overseas or something like that. And he collapsed and they brought him home and he had to go through years of treatments and things like that. And even, uh, he ended up getting to work at the shop. Um, one of the nice things was Aaron Kruger, me cash, um, ended up giving David a lot of work on American horror stories. So that way he could be home more. Um, and so he didn't have to travel as much because TV pretty much was all shooting here in LA um, so that way David could keep his insurance, you know, keep the treatments going, but ultimately didn't have to travel very far. And his son even actually worked at the shop. He worked on the season of American Horror Story Hotel and was at the Emmys when they won their Emmy for makeup. Um, and his son actually got to do makeup on Lady Gaga, which was pretty cool. I'm jealous. Um, yeah. You know, so in all of it, at least they had like those little moments before, yeah. but I, I really had no idea what I was walking into. And it was like, I mean, I had to, I had to mute myself several times because I was like, I Ugh. was a mess Ugh. and date, you know, and David, you know, said to me, he's like, I haven't really talked about this like out loud. And to me to share something like that meant a lot to me because it meant he trusted me. Yeah. Um, and just knowing what, you know, their family went through and how they were able to come together in the wake of it. And, you know, it just, it blows my mind, you know, because it's, it's just, it's nothing that any parent ever wants to go through. Right. And, you know, and the fact that he just trusted me. And I remember when I did his chapter um, and I saw the email and I sent it to him. It was the Saturday. It was the day before father's day. And he emailed me on Father's Day and he said to me, he's like, this is amazing because I I basically sort of turned it into a tribute for his son at the end. And he said to me, he was like, this is the most amazing Father's Day gift I could have ever gotten. Oh, wow. And I I lost it because I'm a softie. And I was just (laughs) like, to me, honestly, like, you know, I think about all the time, the money, the effort, the six and a half years going on, seven years now, I don't even know. Um of doing all of this like that those are the moments that make it worth it because i'm never going to get rich off these books i'm never going to get any sort of notoriety they're great i love sharing you know like i said i love stories so i love sharing stories um but just to know that i was able to give a little something back to him um made me happy you know because that doesn't always happen yeah like some of these like i do the chapter and like okay great you know right right, right sometimes i do the chapter and they're like yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then I never hear from them again. Um, you know, so it's it's always, you, you never quite know what you're walking into. But sure. I do know that because, you know, 
Wes really did want to have David in it, but I think David was like, no, I'm home with the kids because their kids were still pretty small at that okay. point. Okay. So long way of explaining that. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's, that's a cool story, if nothing else. Um, yeah, instead we get David Newsom as Chase Porter. <laughs> Chase I, Porter. What's the name of his effects company? Of It's like a play on Chase. It's Cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. That's what it yes. is. Thank you. I, f- I felt like I felt like I was just in like dead right trivia for a second. I was like, <laughs> wait, what was it again? <laughs> well, you passed. Thank you. Whew. You just won the I round. Would have, I would have been so bummed out. <laughs> um, yeah, he gets his uh, his dick all cut up. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> we only see mostly his chest. Right. But I'm guessing it goes all the way down. Doesn't he get stabbed in, like, the groin? Or is that in the dream at the beginning? Is it just his chest? My memory is that because, he gets stabbed in the, like, between well, the legs, scratch- basically. Well, he's, he's, he scratches his balls. Okay. I just have balls then, on the brain. I guess. Wow. <laughs> all right. Um yeah, because he like scratches himself when he's singing "Losing My Religion" yeah. to himself. Yeah. But the when he they do the when uh, Heather goes to the morgue um, with W. Yeah, Earl Brown. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, nice, uh, nice appearance, right, of W. Earl Brown. And when he pulls the sheet back, this the and you see the Freddy glove, I think, go to his chest. Okay. But you see like the cuts start like in his like breastplate area yeah and go downwards i don't know how far downwards they right. go okay i'm probably so, just remembering it wrong yeah i mean unless there used to be like maybe there was something on like the laser disc that showed extra because i know like i doubt in it Nightma- well i was gonna say like in nightmare five if you watch like the bonus features of when danny hassel gets turned into the motorcycle yeah, yeah. that was on the vhs way- right <laughs> um Maybe, but I never had that VHS, so I just remember it from the DVDs. The VHS was, like, uncut, and that they've never released that version on another format. Why, well, I saw it, like, as a special... Was it, or was it... They show the footage in Never Sleep Again? I think again. it's in Never I, Sleep Again. Or... <sighs> <laughs> this is a fun game. Yeah, it is. Wow. I think like, they show the I, uncut footage in Never Sleep Again. Like, here's what we cut out from that, from that sequence... Um, but and I don't know exactly what was on the VHS. I just know that the, when they released the VHS of Nightmare Five, it was quote unquote uncut, and we've never gotten that version on DVD or Blu-ray. Okay, so yeah, maybe I was watching the Never Sleep Again footage. I'm trying to remember, but I remember I kind of remember it being like a on like deleted scenes for the DVD or something. Maybe yeah, maybe. So I mean, I could be losing it too. It's it'd be unheard of. No, listen, yeah. we're not none of us know what we're talking about anymore. Because I remember I remember seeing it recently, but maybe it was I was watching Never Sleep Again. Um I watch Never Sleep Again all the time. Research. Yeah, I watched I I mean I watched it the first time and then I watch it here. I usually if I go back to it it's for research. Yeah. I don't watch it necessarily beginning to end all the time, but I'll watch like just the section on one of the movies. Yeah. Um, and then like if I'm on a kick or something, like I did a thing about Stephen Hopkins maybe a year ago. And so I watched the section on Nightmare 5 and then went and watched Nightmare 5. 
or uh, I'm yeah, I guess it's oftentimes for research purposes, but I do love it. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it set the standard, and then basically everyone's like, every movie ever needs a <laughs> needs, needs a documentary now that are twice as long as the movies they're covering. Oh yeah, speaking of, I have some news on that front. We'll talk about offline. Oh okay, uh, I'm excited that you'll you'll be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to tease that to everybody listening. Um, but I will say, like, so going back to New Nightmare um, and how it kind of, you know, sort of bl- blends these sort of two different worlds together. I will tell you, like, I still get like that scene in the in the in the third act when, like, you know, uh, Dylan basically runs home. You know, we have crazy Freddy's on the freeway, which is like. Amazing. Like you have like 150 Freddies um, all wearing like these, you know, fun rubber Freddy Krueger masks because you can't make up 150 (laughs) people with prosthetics. Um, And, you know, Heather has to like get get to him and things like that. But um, John Saxon is there. And then that whole interplay is so subtle. I just I get chills thinking about how good that scene is. Because I remember the first time watching it, I was like, wait, did he just call her uh, or he just called her Nancy? Yeah. I was like, what's wait, what? And I, I remember the first time seeing it thinking, I was like, wait, is that like, was that a slip? What? And then you see how it kind of plays out. And then she ends with like daddy. And I was like, oh, we're doing it. And then Freddie comes out of the bed like he does in the original Nightmare. And that score hits. And I was like, oh, my God, yes. It's so um, cool. <laughs> it's so it's cool. just like that whole sequence yeah. to me is better than most horror movies. Yeah. Like that five minutes like alone is just like better than like two thirds of the horror we were getting in the 90s. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, so good. Well, it's so funny. I, you know, after seeing this movie and seeing Wes Craven play himself and then I got the laser disc and I listened to the audio, audio commentary and he's so scholarly and he's so soft spoken that that's in my mind who Wes Craven was, that he was this English professor who happened to make horror movies. And that's ultimately in a lot of ways, yes, who he is, but I hadn't yet seen any of his early work. So I didn't know crazy Wes Craven. I didn't know like porno Wes Craven. I didn't know Last House on the Left Wes Craven or Hills Have Eyes Wes Craven. I didn't know that sort of madman side of him. So when I was exposed to that, I was like, well, now I don't know what to make of this guy because how can he be (laughs) this erudite, like soft-spoken scholar and also make these other movies, which, you know, we covered when we talked about those films. But it was just funny because New Nightmare really solidified an impression on me of who Wes Craven was and that impression wasn't entirely accurate. It wasn't the whole picture at least. Yeah. I think for me, like just seeing this after kind of, you know, giving up on nightmare on Elm street movies kind of, you know, like, you know, in the nineties I was still watching stuff, but again, I was more doing the, the hoity polloity kind of movies and things like that. Cause you know, when you're a teenager, you're just so cool. Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, admittedly, I was still going and seeing Speed and, you know. Speed rules. All kinds of, speed totally rules. Um, you know, so it was, I think this was the movie in my, like, you know, there's a lot of people who, like, credit Scream as the movie that sort of brought them back into horror. Yeah. I think for me, it really was New Nightmare. Oh, okay. Be- I think it really was, because all of a sudden, I was, like, 
it was just like somebody showed me something new because I think in any time, like anything, you know, and I, I, I experienced this in my career. Like there's just certain points where you kind of feel a little burned out. Cause you're like, how many more movies do I need to see about somebody's emotional trauma manifesting as a, a monster? Right. Well, right. you know, I mean, like it can get to be a lot. It can get to be <laughs> a lot of the same and you just want something to come along and shake the cobwebs loose a little bit and make you work a little bit again as a fan. And for me, this was that movie. Like this was the movie where I was like, Oh, okay. We're, we can do some stuff now. Like we're, we're cool with where everything, you know, what happened in the eighties, but we're going, we're going this way now. Yeah. And again, it's like when you look at where other filmmakers were and where the genre was as a whole, like, nobody was doing this kind of stuff and it's just like it's just one of these like I, I wish i could go back in time and just be like how the hell like did you even think of this and yeah. it, what's interesting is i remember <coughs> i won't mute again so i'm sorry i have to cough um i when i was watching it i took a screenshot and i meant to look up if this was in reference to an idea that wes had when he was this age or if this was related to one of his, his kid, but um, when, at the end, you know, where it says, like, you know, not based on real events or whatever, um, this one actually says some parts of this motion picture were inspired by actual events. Yeah. Others may be attributed to the over overactive imagination of a five-year-old boy. Um, the names of certain... The names of certain... Of certain of the characters. Oh, that's weird. That's a typo. <laughs> wow, I just found a typo in cre film credits from almost 30 years ago. Um, characters portrayed have been changed to protect the innocent. Uh, certain incidents portrayed have been dramatized. Uh, with the exclusion of those courageous individuals who portrayed themselves. Uh, and then it goes on to any similarity, blah, blah, blah. So I'm just curious if this was something like he always thought about like, if you could bring evil into the world, like as a kid, what would that be? Mm -hmm. Or if his kid at that point, at some point when he was five said to him like, Oh, you know, wouldn't it be fun if Freddie really was, you know, in the real world. Right. Like, right. Right. So that I'm always, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm very fascinated by that whole thing. I never saw that disclaimer. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I took a picture of it because I was like, it, it struck me because like I've watched the movie hundreds of times now because I'm a weirdo. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, whoa, okay. I was like, that is that is very interesting to me. I never put it together that um, uh, 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 In the Mouth of Madness came out the same year, but that's super, like, A, these two movies would make an amazing double feature, and B... It's all I want now, by the way. Right? How interesting that, that like, night? the two probably biggest masters of horror at this time were both making these movies that sort of examined what horror is, what horror means, what responsibility they have to their creations. Like that the, they're both these sort of self-reflexive new nightmare way more so than in the mouth of madness, but both of them working with similar themes. I, I, I that's so cool. I think. Yeah. I, like what I wouldn't give for a time machine and to bring John Carpenter and Wes Craven together for a double feature and just like watch two masters chat it out. Right. Like I would give anything for that experience because especially 
Carpenter in in the nineties as well. Like we know where he is these days. Like you know, he's he's got his little nuggets of gold, but he's he's pretty cool with just doing video games and watching sports. And you know what? He's earned that. But I would love to see fiery John Carpenter in the nineties, who's come through the eighties and dealt with the stuff that he's dealt, and he's making this movie. And boy, what a conversation! Yeah, like I would love that. We're not to the end of this decade yet, obviously, but just looking back, I'm wondering which... I feel like 90s Wes Craven might be my favorite, just because he's still... He's really at the height of his powers in terms of he's doing stuff like People Under the Stairs, New Nightmare, and Scream. I think those three movies alone... Because I like Nightmare on Elm Street better than anything he's done, but the rest of the 80s are a little bit more uneven for me. Um, his 70s work is obviously very impressive, but it's not as much, again, my bag. So I think the 90s, he's really being more kind of experimental um, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, we, I'm leaving out Vampire in Brooklyn and Music of the Heart, which we'll get to. But I'm just wondering what, uh, where you stand on kind of, do you have a favorite decade for Wes Craven? Yeah, I would, I would probably put the 90s up there uh, as my favorite decade. And it, it, it's tough for me to say that when A Nightmare on Elm Street exists in the 80s or exactly, Serpent and the Rainbow. Right. right, yeah, Serpent and the Rainbow it's I know a, you love. Yeah, and I mean, the shocker for as uneven as it is, it's still, you know, it's a movie that's fun to put on. Um, but I just feel like it's 90s is where Wes really started to push himself. And I think it's interesting where he, this is, you know, because like this phase of his career usually for directors comes early on and then they kind of settle into some sameness, right? Right, right, right. right. Um, unless you're James Wan and you released Malignant last year. They're like, hey, <laughs> let's let's go banana pants over here. Um, so I think it's really interesting when you look at it, like how he pushed things in the 70s and then he was able to to at least to the degree of a nightmare on elm street push things in a different way and then come back in the 90s and be like hey cool we're gonna do some really different stuff now like i don't know a director that was able to reinvent themselves as much as wes craven was throughout his career yeah because like if you look at last house on the left and you think of like Music of the heart, like that, that shouldn't be the same director, right? Like, whatsoever. Yeah, like that shouldn't be a thing at all. Even staying um, in the same genre, I don't think New Nightmare and and Last House on the Left come from the same guy, but they totally do. Yeah, I mean, even like Last House on the Left and Scream. I mean, literally, Last House and Left and pretty much anything after <laughs> and Elm Street really true, is like true. this is the guy. <laughs> You know, you're like, wow, this is this is really the guy. Okay. Well, right. That's again why it was so hard for me to reconcile like '70s Wes Craven with what I knew of him because it was just it was such a departure. But now, sort of tracking his career the way that we are and going movie by movie, it's a lot easier to sort of understand the progression uh, and understand those films within the larger context of who he was and what he was interested in and sort of what drove him and what scared him, uh, to put on screen. Um, it makes a lot more sense now, but again, just coming to it as like, I, I watch his one scene in this movie and then I have to imagine that guy directing last house on the left. It didn't make any sense to me. Or, you know, being Abe snake. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> you know, there's a little ape snake in all of us. There is. Oh, hey, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a favorite uh, non-actor performance in the movie? And is it Wes Craven or is it Bob Shea? Uh, is it? Oh, is it something? Con Tartuffi. Risotto Con Tartuffi. Um, I love the way he says that. I want a shirt that says Risotto Con Tartuffi. I just I think the delivery of that line alone makes it worth the price of admission for me. Um, it's Wes Craven. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, because you know, I mean, we've talked about this in terms of other movies. Like, I am such a sucker for movies about movie making, right? Sure, sure, sure. So this movie, like, you get the opening where it's like they're on the set of a, of a, of a nightmare movie and they're mimicking the opening of the original nightmare on Elm street. And then you get Heather going to like a, a talk show and kind of getting sides, like sort of out of nowhere, you know, yeah, she gets Robert ambushed by up. right. Robert England. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's, it's still fun and it's cute. And of course, you know, it sort of plays into this whole thing of like, you know, what happens with the nightmare on Elm street movies where Robert England became the attraction. Yeah. Um, and Heather kind of got sidelined a little bit. Um, and you know, you have all the fans screaming for him and she's sort of standing there just like, okay, Robert, anytime now, <laughs> um, which is just such, such a subtle little thing. And then she's going to the new lines, you know, offices and Sarah Risher is there. And it's just like, and the receptionist doesn't recognize her. And you're just like, oh, you stupid, you know, biatch. like, how do you not know? like you literally work at new line and you don't know who Heather Leggenkamp is. Like you should be fired. She built this um, place. Yeah, right? <laughs> so put some respect on her name. Um, so for me to like have all of these little nods to the world of movie making and like the process of it too, like it to me is just like it's such a gift. Yeah. You know, and I again I know you don't really love Scream Three, but that's part of the reason I love Scream Three so much is because you it's like pulling up the veil a little bit and of Hollywood. And I love that stuff. Like it's it's like you know, it's my cinematic catnip. I will always gravitate to stories like that um but yeah i think for me the first couple times that i watched new nightmare after west passed away um i got really emotional because it's like it's it's almost like when like you lose your dad in a way and there he is and you have him in front of you and yeah it was just like shit like it hurt right like it really hurt um and now i just find comfort in it that you know, it's fun when we get the little craving cameos in his movies and stuff, but like this was Wes being Wes. And he's so warm and so, you know, like you talk about him being so soft spoken. And like there's just something so comforting about him, even though he's basically telling you, hey, this demonic force is coming to kill you, so get ready. <laughs> and I've been writing your kid into a movie, which is definitely not disconcerting at all. Um, you know, so I think for me, like I, that to me is just. I, I love it like so much. Like it just, it's, it just makes my heart happy. I remember going back to that first viewing his scene where it pans down to the page and we see the dialogue that's just been spoken and it says fade to black. And I remember myself thinking, and I'm in high school at this point, no way you're going to really fade to black. Right. And then he does. And I was like, Oh, the balls. Oh. I love it. <laughs> All the balls for Patrick on this episode. <laughs> I just this love, most... I love the commitment that he's like, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fade to black. And what that says about what we're watching, that it's just this weird 
fever dream that he's exercising uh, in real time. You know, I, it's so fascinating. It really is. Um, I want to, you know, because I know we're probably going to start wrapping up soon, but I would be remiss. I want to talk about Tracy Middendorf in this. Oh, yeah. Um, who I love. Um, she like because uh, one, I, I was really, really excited um, when she popped up on the Scream TV series. Because she plays the mom uh, in the Scream TV series, which wasn't unnerving at all. Um, <laughs> That's good casting. I never watched the Scream TV series, but yeah, but I but I also like um, this. I think this was right around the same time that she pops up on Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Who was she on Nine Hundred Two One Zero? I don't remember. Her. She was she was this character Laura, and she was uh, a drama student. She was trying to get the lead role for Cat in a Hot Tin Roof that Brent, that Brent, I know, I know the whole story. Yeah, you sure do. I do. And that Brenda wanted it too. And then, uh, Laura, she, she ends up, or I think Brenda ends up sleeping with the director. So she gets it. What? But then also, yeah. But then also the Laura, um, Tracy Middendorf's character accuses Steve of raping her, but he never did. Um, because she drunkenly like throws herself at him and he rejects her. And so there's like a, a take back the night uh, thing at the on campus, and she accuses Steve Sanders of like raping her, even though he d- he would never do that. Don't you just besmirch my Ian Ziering, my beloved <laughs> Ian Ziering? Um, so she was she was kind of a pretty big part of. I think it was like the fourth season is when they go to to go to college. Uh, sure, so, yeah. Yeah, but she was like a she was a drama student with a whole lot of drama. I feel like I was still watching the show at that point, but none of this rings a bell. Yeah, because there was like they both had like the white silky dress that they were gonna wear for like their audition for Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, and they both had to do the southern drawl and everything. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you should go back and watch; it's fun stuff. I feel like either nine hundred two one zero or Melrose Place comes up on every episode of Craven Craven. Well, we're in the nineties now, so that's probably gonna happen for a while. So, just wait till we get to models inc oh boy i loved model c well that's Did where I, I well that's where i discovered carrie ann moss well the c there you go it, all, it comes back to the matrix which brings us back to new nightmare yeah i know but that was literally like when i saw the matrix i was like wait that's the chick from models inc holy shit <laughs> yeah i was mind was blown but yeah i used to love models inc so yeah i will always find a way to bring it back to 90210 especially during this era era uh, but no, Tracy Middendorf is great, and that scene in the hospital room is great. I like that they repeat the the Amanda ceiling Wiss gag. ceiling gag, yeah. But it's like it's super visceral, and like doing it in front of a small child, right? And it's like, and Freddie's messing her up, but he ultimately just breaks her neck, right? Like he, he she doesn't die by his claw, like he has attacked her because she's bloodied, but he ultimately snaps her neck, yeah. Which, again, shows, shows that this Freddy is different. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I know this was sort of a bone of contention for a lot of people, um, and I know my feelings on it, but how do you feel about the redesign of Freddy for this? It doesn't bother me. I understand why they had to do it. Yeah, I know that some people really don't like it, but I understand. It kind of goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the show, this idea that we have to differentiate this Freddy from movie Freddy. Um so it makes sense to me, but you are much more of an authority on it because you know all the backstory and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, in terms of the way Freddie looks, I think it's cool. Like, I think it would 
be very different. Um, I love his Doc Martens and his leather pants. Like, sure, it's, it's the, <laughs> it 90s. the 90s. It the 90s, yeah, right. Like, why can't Freddy Krueger go to a goth club if he wants right? to? Right. Um, what's also really He's fun, to too, Silver and I Chair. Yeah, right. Well, so was Silver Chair 94? Uh, was that a little later? 95, I feel like. Okay. I'm going yeah. mean, to look it up while you're talking. I was going to say, I think this Freddy definitely went and saw the Crow in theaters and oh, listened yeah. to that soundtrack a lot. Yes, he like, loved I think that he was really, pure song. Yeah, he, and I think he was really into Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> you know, I think he really was. Um, but what's really fun um, about the casting in terms of, like, effects, like, um, I won't get into the nerdiness of the of the look of Freddie himself, but what's fun is that um, Chuck and Terry at the beginning, um, I think it's Chuck. Wait, let me make sure here. Um Yes, I believe it's Chuck is played by Matt Winston, who is Stan Winston's son. Nice. Which is pretty fun. Nicely done. Yes. So, um, and I love that sequence, too. Because, it, again, it's just like one of those where you're like, you think the movie is just trying to recreate the original opening of Nightmare on Elm Street, and then it becomes something right. completely different. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, we talked about W. Earl Brown, who pops up in Scream, who has one of my favorite understated lines in scream um which we'll talk about when we get there but yeah i just this whole cast is is really fun and friend bennett who also shows up on melrose place there we go <laughs> there was actually a lot of uh nightmare on elm street alumni who showed up on melrose place over the years because every time i would get really excited when i was doing my rewatch uh in 2020 i would be like yes i always love when horror people show up on tv shows like i just that was like my favorite thing ever yeah or like when like regular actors showed up on like X Files, like oh, love it, love everything about it. <laughs> I'm on the uh, the IMDb page right now. Oh, for the record, Silverchair's first album came out in '95, so Freddie was not listening to uh, Silverchair. I'm on the IMDb page right now, and I just discovered that the graveyard worker was played by someone named Beans Morocco, and I would like to only be known from this point forward as <laughs> Beans Morocco. You got it. We're gonna we're gonna get you a Beans Morocco shirt for sure. Beans Morocco has a gigantic resume. Has been working for wow over forty years. Uh, but yeah, please just call me Beans Morocco. Okay, you got it. Beans Morocco, love it. Love everything about that. That's fantastic. Uh, anything else about New Nightmare you want to talk about before we wrap it up? Uh, I really want the painting that Robert England is painting in Me there, too. and I think somebody. Somebody has a recreation of it, and I need it. So if anybody out there is listening and knows how I can get it, I want it. It's pretty I don't need the original. I don't need the original, but I want a print of that because that's so cool. Yeah. And terrifying. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, I didn't get get to buy Patrick Swayze's uh, surfboard last month. So from was that for auction or something? They, somebody auctioned it off, and I was like, Mm. like, wow, if I wish I had $10,000 right now. Not that I have a billion bills to pay or school to pay for, but I would definitely go get. But you dropped ten surfboard. grand on Swayze's, on Bodie's surfboard. I wouldn't even hesitate. <laughs> it would look really great when we're living out of our car, so you know it'll be it, it'd be fun. Um, so and of course we also we also just mentioned Lynn Shay shows up again. Of course, um, who just she's she's so fun. I just. Again, Lynn Shea showing up in a horror movie to me is just like, yeah, all right, we're, right. we're, we're good. Everything's right. good now. So, um, but yeah, I mean, 
I've talked about it enough, but like, yeah, I just, I love this movie so much. Um, you know, I, I do think when it comes down to it, like, look, I have such nostalgic feelings towards three and four specifically because of when I saw those during my childhood. But I think ultimately New Nightmare is my favorite uh, of the sequels. It's mine for sure. And I would say it's top five Wes Craven overall. I don't know where it ranks for you. It's it is right up there. It's definitely it's probably top three for me. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be so fun to sort of figure out our rankings when we're all done with this. I know. I'm nervous about it. I know. I don't like to make decisions. It's so hard. <laughs> be like, I have 14 number ones, Patrick. How do we do this? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Beans. I don't want to. Please. Wanna... Please. <laughs> sorry. I'm a new man. Sorry. I know. Beans Morocco. <laughs> Checking in. <laughs> So next month we will be back with Vampire in Brooklyn, which is going to be interesting. I think that's going to be a very uh, what a very one-sided conversation. It might be. I don't know. Maybe I'll find new stuff to love in it. I've probably only seen it maybe twice. That even that might be overstating it. It's possible I've only seen it once, and it's definitely been a long time. So it will it will basically be like watching it for the first time when I watch it for this podcast. All right. Well, I hope, I hope it goes well for you. Me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited because I watched it quite a bit uh, in the nineties. I had the VHS of that. So nice. I didn't have nightmare five, but I had vampire Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. You might've backed the wrong horse there, but uh... Uh, did I? Uh, yeah, good point. Uh, anyway, thank yeah. you guys very much <laughs> for listening on behalf of my horror BFF, Heather Wixon. This is Beans Morocco saying thanks for listening, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next month.